There are two readings this morning. Um, The first one is uh, from the book of Mark, chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. And the second reading, if you want to put a a finger in there or... (laughs) is uh, Romans, um, chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. So we're going to start off in Mark, chapter 12, starting at verse 13. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Okay, and if you flick forward to the passage in Romans... So that's Romans chapter 13, starting at verse 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. This is God's word. Thank you, Ginny, for reading. Morning, everyone. Nice to see you. My name is Pete Snow. I'm one of the ministers here, and um, we're in Mark chapter 12. That's our main text this morning, so perhaps you keep that one open. As we begin our time together, let's, let's pray, shall we? Father God, we, we thank you that your word has everything we need. It's totally sufficient, and we pray that this morning uh, you would bless each one of us, however new we are to the Bible or however accustomed to it. We pray that knowing the power of the Spirit, knowing we can come to you in Jesus' name and wanting your glory. Amen. Do you remember Mary Poppins? Remember the song? 1964, apparently, that film came out. Um, Remember the song when little Michael Banks has a um, tuppence clutched in his hand and the bankers try and prize it from him? I think we've got a photo just to jog the memory a little bit. Here we are. 
the, the uh, elderly senior bankers in the, in the lobby of the bank and they sing this song to try and get some Michael's precious tuppence out of his hand. And he's clutching it like this close to his chest. Um, they sing, uh, if you invest your tuppence wisely in the bank, safe and sound, soon that tuppence safely invested in the bank will compound. And you will achieve that sense of conquest as your affluence expands in the hands of the directors of the Fidelity Fiduciary Bank. And as um, we have little Michael, I think we've got a face here. As we have him here, clutching his tuppence just beneath his chin like this, I think we're supposed to be on his side as the, as the senior bankers tries to prize this poor little boy's tuppence out of his hand. It's all he's got. He's so pleased with it. And he says, give it back, give me back my money. I think we're supposed to be on his side. And it may feel like as Jesus comes to say, pay your taxes, you should obey the government, it may feel like, oh, oh no, Jesus is on the side of the institution as well. Just let me keep my tuppence, Jesus, institution, the big man, and um, let me have my rights. I want to say this morning that there is something um, brilliant and profound going on here. If we can just see beyond the first thing, which is about taxes, and we'll, we'll talk about that, but... Jesus has got something bigger, more glorious to say about life and God and everything that goes on, as well as just taxes. Um, Mark chapter 12, which is the little series that we're in, is a bit like a test series, like a summer test series. And the, the, the religious leaders keep coming to Jesus and bowling the worst possible balls they can find, a, a googly and then a yorker and then a full toss. And there's like a full over of these difficult questions that they toss down the, the wicket at Jesus. And um, we'll see again and again that he just steps up to them and sort of just hits them right out of the park with the most amazing answers. And every time as, as the ball goes sailing over the boundary, the religious leaders think, oh, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> oh, I didn't know he could do that. So there's another enjoyable example here in our uh, passage this morning. They think, of course, they've got the winning ball. If you just have a look down at um, verse 13. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to catch Jesus in his words. It was a slightly unusual combination, but they thought, ah, if we put these guys together with their best question, we'll get him here. We'll get the wicket. And they came to him and said, teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not, the poll tax? So they think they've got the winning ball here. They think they've absolutely cracked it because of this poll tax issue, which was a, a hot political potato. So the, the poll tax, we were told a little bit about it in the footnote. It was a special tax levied on subject peoples, not on Roman citizens. Literally, the word was census. is where we get our word census from. So it was a tax that everyone had to pay just for the privilege of living there, a head tax. You can imagine if you're a subject of Rome who's been invaded by Rome and they just levy a tax on you for the privilege of being under Rome. Oh, that's oh, that really great. Oh, I hate that tax. I mean, of all the taxes I have to pay, that's the worst one. It's just this head tax of being there. So that's what we're talking about. You can, you can imagine how oh, this is actually a hot issue that they're bringing up here. And they are setting up for Jesus what they think is a sort of catch-22 here we go. We've got a slide on the screen here. They think that they've got him because whatever answer he gives, they think they've got him stuck. Okay, If he says, um, don't pay the tax, 
that, that really amounts to saying, well, just be a good, faithful Jew, side with the jealous, uh, zealous Jews, and uh, don't do it. And that means you're obeying God. Okay, they think, well, if he does that, then the Romans are going to kill him. If, on the other hand, he goes on the right-hand side and he says, well, just pay your tax, then, um, then the, the zealous Jews aren't going to like that at all. And they're the ones who are going to kill him because it's a Passover crowd and they're going to be all fired up for God. So either way, he's going to get it in the neck and we'll get what we want. You see? So they think whichever one he picks, he's stuck. And what he says leaves them so astounded that actually this word only appears once in the whole New Testament in verse 17. And they were amazed at him. That word is just a totally unique word, which is sort of, I think if I was allowed to translate it, I might say it's utterly gobsmacked. I can't believe, I never saw that coming. That's incredible, the way you answered that question. So let's see what he says, shall we? Let's just have a, have a think about how he does this. Two things. He says, give the government your taxes and give God your life. It's incredibly simple, very punchy. Give the government your taxes, give God your life. Let's start off with the first half. Give the government your taxes. And let's follow through what he says altogether. Verse 15. Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. You see, so that's the first half. We're really going to focus on verse 17. And the first half of what he says in verse 17 is, well, if it's Caesar's, give it back to him. I was given a, a denarius a couple of years ago as a present. Um, it's really a Roman denarius, so it normally hangs on the wall of our house in this little frame. And um, have a look at it afterwards if you want. It's a proper Roman coin, not quite from the first century AD, but I think it's the, the second or the third. And sure enough... It's got Caesar's head on it. I don't know, that's probably not a great surprise, is it? I think back in those days, this probably was a bit more of a surprise to them. To have a, an image replicated on every coin that's exactly the same, I mean, that was quite a big deal of technology. Oh, sure enough, the same thing that's in everyone's pocket has Caesar's face on it. So unusually, in that time, it was possible for Jesus to say, give me the coin out of your pocket. Come on, let, if you want to talk about taxes, let, show me the thing we're talking about. And... Oh, there's Caesar's face, just as we all expected. And here's the point, of course. If it's got Caesar's face on it, if it's very obvious that he is the one who's organizing your government, he is the one that's making the machinery of state work, then give it back to him when he asks for it. Give it back to him, because it belongs to him. But this might sound like a simple thing that Jesus is saying, um, but he's actually, in one sentence... He's setting up the whole way that Christians are to respond to the state. A lot hangs on this statement, and it gets built on throughout the rest of the New Testament, but this is really where it starts. Christians are not anarchists or violent revolutionaries or terrorists. Christians give the government their taxes, Jesus says. And in fact, it doesn't even stop at tax and the currency in your pocket, but there's a lot else besides and that's why we had Romans chapter 13 read as well, because the Apostle Paul takes Jesus' pithy statement here and he just builds on it, a theology of how to be a citizen. I don't know if you notice in Romans chapter 13, verse 7, 
Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe them taxes, then pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. And if honor, then honor. You see? So not just taxes, but honor, respect, and revenue as well. Jesus seems to be saying, obey Rome. You see, he seems to be taking one of the left-hand options that we talked about. Uh, sorry, right-hand options that we talked about. But in fact, he, he builds more on top. Which is to say, I think we've got another diagram, Christian, here. He's, he rejects this sort of binary either-or notion, and he says it's much more like this. Yeah, obey Rome, that's important, because that in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, is an authority that God's put in place. But you've got to understand that overarching all of that is God. God is the one who sits as the ultimate authority and puts every lesser authority in place. And unless you understand the big overarching thing, then you can't quite understand why you should relate to the state in this particular way. So we could think of examples, can't we, in our, in our day and age. It seems like from Romans chapter 13, verse 1, God really has set up HMRC to collect my taxes. Odd though that might sound at first. He really has sent the police and the Crown Prosecution Service. He really has set up speed cameras and, yes, dare I say it, traffic wardens to enforce the law and to be a source of authority. And I will obey them because my understanding is that God puts authorities in place. He's the overarching authority and he's put them there as a lesser authority who receive it from him. God sets up the government. So, when Jesus says here back in Mark 12 that give to Caesar what is Caesar's, he is saying, but not only saying, look, pay, pay the council tax to the binmen, come and collect the bins, will you? Just pay what's due to them. He is saying, pay your income tax so you might have an NHS when you get ill and you have to go to hospital. He's also saying it's not just a matter of tax, but honor the government. Honor the government in, in little ways that, that show you respect their position of authority. When they ask you to do a tax return by a certain deadline, do it. Or if you're doing something bureaucratic but necessary, like applying for a passport, then do what they ask in the way that they've asked, in the time allotted that they've given you. It also goes so far as offering extra things. You know, I will offer the government my prayers, as it says elsewhere in the New Testament. I will pray for them. And it's not actually my hope that the government's just going to fall flat on its face and be terribly embarrassed in all sorts of cases. I really want them to do well, so I will pray for them. I think possibly the media don't always have that attitude. And, and I will, I think, interact with them where possible. Someone suggested to me just recently after the general election that I, I might write to my local MP and just congratulate them on being elected and let them know that I'll be praying for them. So I did. I've never done that before. Uh, they didn't respond. But uh, I like to think that's just a nice way of saying, look, I respect the position you've been given, and I am praying for you. I'm, I'm, I'm for you, and I want you to succeed. Objection, somebody may say. This makes you a doormat. I think this is just a path to, you know, the state piling on whatever they want to on top of the little man and um, getting them to roll over and obey. Especially, of course, that's a problem if you've got a corrupt government, isn't it? The state can just put stuff on the people. That's a good objection, and it's one that's been felt throughout history, I think. In answer, Jesus would say, Christianity is the most subversive thing you can do. 
It is the most subversive thing you can do to say to a government, I will respect you, I will obey you, Rome, government, your majesty, but I'm going to do it for not the reason you think and not the reason you want. Am I going to do it because I believe there's someone above you? See, if, that, if, if we take our diagram, you imagine there's no ark on top. You imagine that you're being asked to just obey Rome and obey the government and pay your taxes. There's no higher court of appeal there. You can't go anywhere. If Rome is evil and wicked and unjust, then you've got nowhere to go unless you want to overthrow the government or just run away and, and try not to obey until they catch you. If there is an ark on top, suddenly there's something you can do. Suddenly, suddenly you've got a higher court of appeal. Suddenly there's someone you can pray to in this life and entrust judgment to in the next. For that reason, it's been said that Christians should obey the government right up until the point that it means disobeying God. Should obey the government right up until it means disobeying him. For that reason, I, I really like a, a, someone who's become a hero of mine recently called Claude Brousson. As you can probably tell, he was French. And um, he was a man who lived in the um, late, 17, uh, late 1600s, 17th century. Claude Brousson was a, a French pastor. And there was an intense period of persecution in the French Protestant church that kicked off in 1685. And it lasted for a century. And he was just an ordinary lawyer who was a Protestant believer in France in, in 1685. The Roman Catholic king of France um, says, right, from now on, Roman Catholicism is the only religion. You must come to, to mass, and the soldiers are going to march you there. And if you don't like it, tough. Obey Rome or nothing. You die. What happened in what's known as the Huguenot um, persecution is most of the rich Protestants who could afford it, they fled the country, because why wouldn't you? Most of the pastors also fled the country because their job was particularly dangerous. They would just die on the spot if they were caught preaching the Protestant gospel. And then there was this guy called Claude Brousson, who was a lawyer, ordinary bloke, fled the country because he was rich enough to do it, got to Switzerland and thought, I've got to go back. I've got to go back because there's, there's loads of poor Protestant believers who haven't got the money to flee the country. You can't afford to do anything, and no one's preaching the word of God to them. I've got to go back. So this ordinary lawyer becomes a pastor, spends nine years hiding in the woods, hiding in caves because the spies and the soldiers and the dragoons are out to get him. Nine years just going around trying to preach sermons to people and offer them the Lord's Supper, offer them communion. And after nine years, absolutely exhausted and emaciated, used to sleeping out in the rain and the cold, he finds friends where he can, and just building up the church one by one. They eventually catch him. And they try him on this charge, preaching contrary to the king's prohibition, which is a charge he admitted. He said, look, if you want to kill me on that charge, I am guilty. I've been doing that. I felt I had to obey God rather than Rome. They also charged him with um, trying to bring a foreign army into the land to uh, usurp the king. And he said, absolutely not. I've never done anything like that, and you can find no evidence for it. So I won't admit that charge. But if you want to get me on preaching the gospel, I'm, uh, I'm guilty on your charge. So they executed him in 1698. The judge, a man called Baville, said, I would not for a world have to judge this man. Because even the, the, the Roman Catholic man who'd been appointed by the king to meet out this unjust punishment said, I can tell he's just obeying his God. I can tell he's got a clean conscience. 
You see, so I will, I will obey the government right up until the point it means disobeying God. And then I'm sorry, I have to obey him. I think just on a point of wisdom, it's, it's sometimes better to escape rather than stay if you can. My friend was telling me from Zimbabwe, uh, uh, her mum, who's a Zimbabwean, had a, a pension of £160,000 built up over all the years, just about to retire. And um, she went to go and draw the pension and the government had just taken it because the inflation's so high, unemployment's 97%. The government had taken £160,000, left her with, do you know how much? £150, which they said isn't actually available for her right now anyway. I think in that case, it's better to leave the country if you can, because it doesn't feel like it's going to get better. So some Christians have decided that in the past. But I will obey the government. I will give you my taxes right up until the point it means I have to disobey God. Normally, you can have my taxes. Secondly, we should move on. Uh, verse 17, give God your life. And of course, this is the biggest thing. Let's just look at Jesus' amazing statement again. And Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Which, which is amazing and profound, isn't it? But it does just beg some unpacking. Okay, Jesus, that is so brief and so seemingly profound. I need to just spend a while on it. What is God's here? I might, if I can, I asked um, Ginny if she might just help me as a volunteer since she was doing the reading. I told her that I could have picked anyone and she was just unfortunate enough to be doing the reading this morning. I think we need to understand the link Jesus is making here. So he's had his denarius and he said, whose image is this? It's Caesar's. And I think we're to make a link as Jesus looks around the crowd at the other human beings around him and, and he's as if to say, whose image is this? That's all I wanted you for. Thank you so much. <laughs> you're a human being and you're in God's image. You see the point? So it could have been anybody. Whose image is this? Whose, whose image is this? Oh, you're in the image of God. Genesis 1:27, right from the beginning of the Bible. Give it back to God. So we might think with um, Michael in Mary Poppins, you know, it's a, it's a really big deal for me to hand over this tuppence, these, these taxes to the government. But Jesus is upscaling the question significantly and saying, it's not just about the tuppence here. It's about the whole hand, the whole arm. It's about your whole self, a bit like the hokey cokey. You put your whole self in. You know, God is after your whole life, your whole self, everything that's made in God's image. I think that for that reason, it's incredibly helpfully phrased in verse 17, do you see? Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Give, give it back. It, it, was, it was only loaned to you anyway, this, your image, his image that you're made in. Give it back to him. It's his by right. Which makes me realize, of course, that he's the cre creator. I'm the creature. I'm the creature. I've been created by him. So I don't deserve to be in this body. I didn't do anything to earn this. I don't deserve to be drinking in these big breaths of air right now. I didn't do anything to, to earn the right to be born. And I, I didn't earn the right to have my hands and my legs and my eyes and my ears. Of course, there is stuff in life that you earn. You know, we talk about earning a living. We talk about earning people's affections. We talk about earning a deposit for a house. There is stuff that you earn. But if you died it, back far enough, you do eventually get to one whacking great gift, which is when God let you be born. I didn't earn that. 
I think, and here's the thing, and I find this is where it bites. We really avoid giving God our life. The religious leaders, of course, they were a prime example of this. They're on the pages of Mark chapter 12. They are desperately avoiding giving God their life. You know, he's, Jesus is coming to earth as a human being. He's sitting all these sixes and answering their questions incredibly, and they're avoiding the obvious implications. Of course, they're avoiding a whole lot of other stuff as well. They've avoided the Old Testament prophecies. They've uh, avoided the miracles that Jesus has been doing for a couple of years. They've ignored his divine teaching that he's just showcasing for them here, which surely suggests he is God. And they've ignored the, the explicit warnings he's given them. They've ignored it all. Duh, 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 duh. Avoiding giving God their life. I don't know about you, but I feel like I personally have spent a lot of my life avoiding giving it to God. It was a big moment for me when it happened. I was age 17, and I, I gave my life to God in a big way. That was the turning point for me when I trusted Jesus. I said, you can be in charge now. I will obey you. I was somewhat dismayed, actually, to find that that wasn't the only turning point in my life. That was the very significant one where I was born again, but actually there have been many, many others ever since. There was one significant moment four years after that when I was considering whether to do an apprenticeship. And uh, I remember standing on a street corner in South London, um, talking to somebody on the phone, weighing it up, and the thought process was, I don't want to give God my life. This is my career. This is, this is my life. Why would I give it over to him? That's one example of how it's worked out for me. And even today, I'm just made to discover that I can get up someday and absolutely avoid praying. Absolutely know it's the right thing to do. I absolutely have a theology degree, which assures me it's the right thing to do. Um, I absolutely have a job where I'm supposed to do it, and yet I can avoid praying. And suddenly, doing the washing up really is very attractive as an option, or doing some chore around the house, or doing something else. Because I'm putting off giving this part of my life to God, giving this day to God. I wonder about all our lives, whether it's in the big things, whether it's in the little things. Do we just avoid it? I like this quote from Martin Luther, who, of course, uh, was the great reformer from Germany. I think we've got it on the screen. I have held many things in my hand and have lost them all. But whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. I've held many things in my hand, many, many tuppences, and I've lost them all because I found I wasn't able to hang on to them in life. But whatever I've placed in God's hands, that I still possess. He's, it, what Martin Luther discovered was it's safer to give it to God than it is to try and hold on to it myself. Give it back. Here's the thing, of course. I think this is, this is like the twist in the tale of the Christian story. God will not prize your hand open. Won't do it. He's not like a mean banker trying to snatch your tuppence from you, trying to get you to put your whole self in. He won't force you. That's not how he works. What he does is open his hand first. God opens his hand first before he ever asks me to open mine. It's, it's like he'll woo you, if I can put it that way. He'll, he'll love you so that you want to open your hand and give to him. That's what Jesus does, of course, when he comes to earth. You think of it in terms of our two points today. Give the government your taxes. Give God your life. Did Jesus pay his taxes? Yes. 
Is that not the most mind-boggling thought, actually? God paid taxes. I find that weird. But we know from this example where Jesus says, pay your taxes. Another example in Matthew chapter 17, where Jesus actually pays his tax. And um, from the way he behaves at the trial, you know, when he's put before the Roman governor and all the arranged junior authorities on earth, and he sort of allows them to do their job. That's not the most mind-boggling thought that God pays his taxes. Of course, it's even better than that. It's not just that he's coming to earth to show me how to pay my tax and be a good citizen. He's coming to earth to pay my tax for me. He's coming to earth to be a good citizen, to pay my taxes, obey the government, to be the sort of human being in God's image that I haven't been because I was such a bad one. Which, of course, leads us on to the second point, that Jesus paid his taxes and Jesus gave God his life. See? I mean, there's a thought to boggle the mind even further. God gave his life to God. What? But that's what happens at the end of the gospel. It sounds even more paradoxical, but yes, that's the story. I so avoid giving God my life, opening my hand, doing all the things that's required of me, that God has to come to earth and do it for me. He opens his hand first before he asks me to open mine. I think that's a powerful thing indeed. He won't force your hand open. He'll love you so much that you want to open it. In church history, Christians haven't always got this right. I think there are examples like Claude Brousson when they they really have. Let me just give you one more uh, before we close. In the South African church in 1957, when apartheid was just beginning, the South African government, government announced that they wanted to pass something called the Native Laws Amendment Bill. And the Native Laws Amendment Bill had a clause in it, which was called the Native Clause, and it said that there was going to be um, no racial association in churches or in schools or hospitals or clubs or basically any other public meeting place. But you see, you see what that means? So the gov- government announced you are not going to be able to come to church anymore and sit next to a black person if you're white or sit next to a white person if you're black. And the Archbishop of Cape Town at the time was a man called Geoffrey Clayton. And by all accounts, he was just a gentle bloke, ordinary man who had been made Archbishop. And he decided, when the government announced this bill with his bishops, that they must disobey. He wrote to the Prime Minister of South Africa at the time, and he said, if this bill becomes law, Prime Minister, I am, quote, unable to obey it or counsel our people, the church, to do so. You see, there was a man who could stand before Jesus after he died or when Jesus returns and and look at Jesus and say, I gave the government my taxes, but I gave you my life. I I open my hand to you and I see what you've done in the gospel and it's a pleasure to obey you. Just imagine with me, if we got this right in our generation, if, if the church in the 21st century, leaving aside the lessons of the 20th century, if the church in the 21st century was known for paying their taxes, honoring the government, but doing it because they obey God. I think that would be, well, beautiful, winsome, honoring to God. Of course, we'd have something to say to the state. We do obey you, we honor you, we we obey, pay, pray, interact. But we do it because we serve God. 
got something to say. He's got my life. Let's pray that that will be the case. Almighty God, we recognize you this morning as the one who sets all governments in place, who's always been the, the superintendent, the president, the king, and the reigning monarch over all the earth. Pray this morning that you would indeed help us to pay our taxes, to honor the government and do what's right. But Father, we pray that you would um, ground in us this sense of obeying you above anyone else, of being wooed and loved in the gospel and therefore wanting to do it for gospel reasons, for love of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.